Well, April has arrived, and we find ourselves back in the undertow for episode number 11 of the Undertow Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to the crime comics of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Uh, Tonight we are diving into Kill or Be Killed number 7, the latest issue in uh, the ongoing Brubaker Phillips book uh, coming out monthly from Image Comics. Um, As always, this is Robert Watson, and I am here with my co-host Bubba Beasley. Hey everyone, glad y'all can make it. Yeah, we're going to start things off with some news, and uh, I'll let you know where you can find all the episodes. As always, you can find us undertow.podbean.com. We are available on iTunes. If you'd like to leave us a review, we would appreciate it. If you would like to send us an email, at undertowpodcast on Twitter, um, or the email is undertowpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out, let us know uh, what's going on out there, and uh, we'll be happy to hear from you. Yeah, we're going to start things off here, uh, get everybody up to speed on the latest news in the Brubaker and Phillips world. I know there's been a new newsletter from Ed Brubaker since our last episode, so I'm going to hand things off to Bubba, and he will fill you in on all of those details. Yeah, uh, we have a couple news items. Uh, First, uh, would like to, you know, kick things off with an item on Kill or Be Killed itself, um, Brubaker and Phillips' uh, current ongoing kind of vigilante uh, series, is that um, there wasn't much made of it, but we noticed that um, in uh, in May, coming up, there will be an Image Firsts edition of the uh, debut issue. If you don't know what Image Firsts is, it's basically this ongoing um, series of, uh, of reprints of first issues, for um, $1 a piece, so so very low introductory price. Uh, I assume anybody listening to to this podcast doesn't need an introduction to, be, to kill or be killed. But these sorts of things are great ways are a great way for you for readers to, to sample new works. And if you know somebody who might be interested in kill or be killed, Spin the buck, get the image first copy, and just hand it to them as opposed to, to loaning them your copy. I think it makes a great first issue. I think it's a it's a great first issue not only for this this um, ongoing series, but for uh, Brubaker and Phillips' um, entire collaborative um, repertoire. So uh, up next, uh, Brubaker um, has been working on projects outside of um, of monthly comics. And uh, have three projects to report on is that, um, as we, we covered in the in the um, criminal comic uh, or the criminal blog um, a few weeks back, that uh, Maniac Cop has been greenlit. Uh, this is um, the uh, the remake of the 1988 uh, cult thriller film um, being produced by Nicholas uh, Winding Refn. Um, will be directed by John Hyams, and it's uh, been been um, pinned by you know, the script has been written by Ed Brubaker. Um, in addition to it being greenlit, uh, Variety exclusively reported that um, that the movie is scheduled to film this summer, and it provided what, as far as I know, is the um, the very first, I guess, synopsis of the um, uh, of the movie. Uh, set in the present, Maniac Cop follows a determined L.A. police officer who sets out to reveal the truth about the brutal murders of innocent people by one of her fellow cops. So it does sound like the uh, protagonist is a, a female cop and um, that the, the titular maniac cop isn't, is uh, going to be the, the antagonist, the target of, of the movie. So um, also, yep, uh, you had heard uh, 
Ed Brubaker's monthly newsletter, a new issue came out at the beginning of the month, and um, Ed Brubaker pointed to another variety story that um, that his uh, the TV show that he's developing also with Nicholas Winding Refn, um, Too Old uh, to Die Young, has a has a a star Miles Teller from. Um, Whiplash, who had the the lead role in in the critically acclaimed uh, indie film Whiplash, has been cast um, in the uh, in the basically in the crime drama uh, set in uh, modern day uh, Los Angeles. Um, it's described here that the that the series explores the criminal underbelly of Los Angeles by following killers' existential journeys in becoming samurai. I'm sure we'll see more casting announcements and more production announcements as the uh, series uh, approaches uh, production and then its uh, release uh, through uh, through Amazon Studios. So, um, the third thing, and this was uh, brought to our attention by by one of our uh, listeners and one of the readers from the podcast, was a, a spotlight interview with um, Ed Brubaker on uh, the college-focused website, The College Juice, uh, produced by Barnes & Noble. And, um, and Brubaker mentioned a few of his top-secret projects, including, quote, an original graphic novel. No idea about timeframes, no idea who he would be collaborating with, but it's very interesting news and something to, to keep our eyes on. So, um, the other and last big item to mention is not really news per se, but it's definitely something that we want to direct our um, our listeners to. It's a um, an extended hour long interview with uh, Sean Phillips on the uh, Comic Art Podcast uh, produced by the. Um, uh, the Lakes International Comic Art Festival out of uh, Kendall, England, and, um, and and Sean Phillips was recently interviewed in the second hour in the second episode uh, of the podcast, and it is great. Anybody who's a fan of Brubaker and Phillips should should check out um, that interview. Anybody who's a fan of comics should should check out the podcast in general. They just announced on uh, April thirteenth. That they that the podcast is moving to a uh, twice a month schedule starting in the beginning of May, and I just I, I do find it amusing that, that just like um, the Image Plus uh, magazine um, had to put uh, Killer Be Killed in the second issue, that this podcast had to put Sean Phillips in the second episode. But the the episode is great. It's a really good camp companion to the the Art of Sean Phillips uh, book. That, that Phillips uh, produced a couple years back. If you don't have that book, listen to, to the um, listen to the interview. And if if some of the other projects pique your interest, that book is a great look at, at at the entire body of work that he's produced and a great look at the process. And just yeah, I, I ended up taking a few notes for um, uh, tonight's show notes. That yeah, it, 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 the interview serves as a kind of a, a professional autobiography. You know, it, it covers everything from uh, Sean Phillips' beginning in girls' comics to, to UK's Crisis Magazine and Hellblazer and Dread to uh, the more recent collabor- collaborations with Ed Brubaker. And there's really interesting uh, nuggets that, you know, number one, uh, apart from uh, Phillips' work with Brubaker, his most prominent work is, is, is definitely – his breakthrough work has definitely got to be Marvel Zombies. And um, the reason that uh, – that, that Sean Phillips did the the artwork for Marvel Zombies was that he was, uh, and I quote, desperate for work. 
So it wasn't um, this this kind of compulsion um, to produce this particular story. It was uh, work for hire that that led to really great things. Similarly, um, his first major collaboration with Ed Brubaker, which we covered a few episodes back, Scene of the Crime, was actually Sean Phillips' first job as an inker. He had always produced his own work start to finish, um, never doing pencils for someone else to ink and never inking for someone else to, to, to pencil. And his inks of Michael Lark's pencils was the first time that he that he ever did a, a partial work um, in a comic book like that. Um, he mentions his work with, with Ed Brubaker. He mentions that they're on a, a five-week schedule, so it explains the whole um, 10 comic books a month thing that they do, that, that it's more specifically five months, five weeks per issue. And uh, what that ends up doing is it produces a, uh, a, a series that, that looks monthly, particularly because you have months with the extra, with the extra fifth week. And um, the, uh, the collaborations have led to, to some of their work being optioned for, um, for Hollywood. And he mentioned in passing that sometimes the options expire, sometimes those, those options are reclaimed by uh, Brubaker and Phillips, so that might, though he doesn't go into details, that might give us an, uh, an indication of what's, what's come of the, uh, the sleeper um, adaptation, for instance. And uh, he mentioned that, uh, that he and Ed Brubaker are doing um, one more work coming up, a single page in a um, newspaper-sized uh, spirit comic book for the um, Lakes Comic Art Festival. Hopefully, um, people who won't be able to attend uh, the festival will be able to, to get a copy of that uh, comic book. But um, the, as I find out more information about, about that comic book, particularly because it's going to have a, uh, a Brubaker and Phillips collaboration, I will be sure to pass it on both at the Criminal Blog and uh, here in this podcast. Uh, there was one other thing worth mentioning in that interview. It was that um, – there was uh, uh, questions from from fans. Um, Robert, do you would you like to, to give us some details about uh, one of the questions that uh, Sean Phillips was asked? Yeah, definitely. It was like like we said, it's a it's a great interview, and uh, the hosts of that podcast were are, were nice enough to reach out to us, and uh, we've been communicating via Twitter a little bit, and they just said, "Hey, we're heading up to interview Sean tomorrow. If you have a question you'd like to uh, have us ask," and so. Um, I wrote up a few questions, and they picked one, and um, the one that they asked him was about what his favorite musical album is of all time, which if you follow Sean on social media, he often posts what he's listening to at the moment. And as a big music fan myself, I, I was curious as to know how he would answer it. And he, he deliberated a lot. He didn't have a definitive answer, but um, his answer was interesting. He said, uh, Elvis, David Bowie, and Shirley Bassey, who you might know from... Uh, from singing the theme to Goldfinger, and who were they? They all, all three of those artists um, have the same birthday, and he said they were all three favorites of his. So I thought that was a great answer. But yeah, it's like Bubba said, it's a great interview. Um, it's only the the second episode, um, and you can find that podcast at uh, comicartpodcast.wordpress.com, I believe is their URL. Yep. Um, and I would say that they have a third episode coming up shortly. Um, but anyway, we do appreciate them. Like I said, they they reached out. They gave us a little bit of a shout out on the on their episode, and so we're we're returning the favor. And uh, yeah, we definitely think our listeners would would be interested to check out that interview with Sean Phillips. 
And yeah, that Brubaker interview in the College Juice, uh, that original graphic novel is quite intriguing. I'm, I'm excited to hear more about that. Um, and then he had a couple good lines just describing uh, Kill or Be Killed. He, was, he said it's the uh, idea of someone forced into that life by possibly supernatural forces. That was something he hadn't seen before, which prompted him to write it. And he said it's somewhere between a thriller and a dark existential mystery story in comics form. Um, so, so yeah, I would say that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, um, maybe maybe not issue number seven, but certainly the series in general. Yeah, if I I'd I'd be tempted to I'm very tempted to to steal the joke without um without attribution a joke from the mystery science theater riff tracks guys that you know about issue number seven is that that people were shocked by the blatant carnality. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, issue number seven. It took a different turn as we um, we will we will start to break that down. Of course, we'll we'll give our our spoiler alert that we always give. Obviously, we're going to dive into the the to the issue pretty hard. So you'll definitely want to read the issue before listening to this podcast because we're going to talk about the whole thing. Um, but yeah, issue number seven, we are shifting to Kira's point of view. So it's a new turn in the book. The first issue that we haven't that we've seen where. Uh, it's exclusively from someone else's point of view, this being Kira. So on the cover, it fits. We have Kira with a shotgun who now has blue hair. Uh, nice cover to the issue. And then we open it up, and it, it it's an interesting montage at the beginning. Um, it's got the caption, What Kira Sees. And so we see the narration she's talking about, her family book of the dead, which is you know basically these photographs of dead ancestors from, from Kira's family. And uh, Sean really does some amazing work. You know, you even the the photographs look realistic. I mean, we see characters aging in the photographs. We see the types of photographs evolve that would fit with the technology of the era that they are photographing, which I thought was an interesting effect. Yeah, and Brightweiser's very subtle coloring to go because we saw the black and white previews of some of these pages in an earlier newsletter, and now that we see the the color ones, at first I thought that wasn't wasn't any changes and then yes yeah, slowly the world become transitions from sepia to black and white to barely color to you know garish you can tell that a lot of care was put into it and there's that there's a nice shot on that on the second page of these these two twin girls that really reminded me of the the twin girls from the shining and so after the photo montage we we cut to kira talking with her therapist and that takes up actually a large portion of the book is this um, the sequence where she is talking with her therapist, and there's a good breakdown of this scene um, on Comics Alliance if you want to check it out. It's something that Ed mentioned in, in his newsletter also, and I went to check it out. I hadn't read it before that. But it kind of goes through the way that Sean and Ed did the sequencing, and it's a pretty interesting breakdown of the scene. And so we get these repeated close-up shots of Kira and her therapist's faces uh, during the therapy session, but they're not, you don't see them together. So you get kind of this claustrophobic effect. And there's a lot of, um, the whole issue, there's a lot of focus on these close-up facial expressions and, and the expressions and what they're conveying. Um, even if you took out the words, I think you would have an interesting narrative just following along with these facial expressions. There's way more of a focus on that than you see in a typical comic book. Well, and and to that I would I would say, you know, first of all, the, that if... Um, kind of the the less skilled comic artists can make an apocalypse look boring. The really great artists can make, you know, <laughs> a therapy just session. mundane, yeah. yeah, just mundane things that are happening in the everyday world. Yeah, make it riveting. And um, 
one of the things that came up in that interview with with Sean Phillips is that that his background was in comics for, for for girls comics, you know, kind of like the 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 UK's equivalent of Archie comics, I guess in the in the 1980s and um his first training was from a guy who who also did um comics like that rather than superheroes or zombies or sci-fi and this does feel like in terms of uh of the plot and what we're seeing on the page this does seem like a throwback to that kind of comic this felt like a completely different genre this felt like an indie comic much more than than um Brubaker and Phillips' typical stuff. I, th- I think this belongs as much with with Ed Brubaker's uh, solo work, A Complete Low Life, than anything else. And I think that might be part of the point is that in real life, you know, the, um, stories that we would put into different genres and that we would categorize differently, the stories of, uh, uh, of our lives and our neighbors and families and friends and coworkers, they fit these different genres. While one person is is getting ready for a big wedding and having to deal with future in-laws and and experiencing essentially a romantic comedy, you know somebody else is is dealing with with tragedy. Somebody else is is having to put up with with the slapstick of of having toddlers and small kids, and and others you know on the the edges on the fringes of society are are living um thrillers or police pr- procedurals or war movies so yeah but yeah we find out um quite a bit about Kira's backstory in this issue so we we find out that her dad um died of cancer when she was 16 there's another similarity that she has with Dylan uh both lost a father at a young age um she has lots of, uh, you know, we see that there's lots of issues with her mom, their relationship. Her mom is elderly in the hospital, um, and Kira obviously holds quite a bit of animosity towards her mom. We find out that her mom was cheating on her dad with her art teacher, and so that's, I think, contributed to them splitting up and, you know, kind of contributed to the animosity that the two feel. Um, Becky is Kira's sister. We're introduced to that character briefly. And uh, Kira finally goes to visit her mom in the hospital. Her mom has cancer. So there's just, you know, lots of tragic circumstances happening uh, in everybody's lives and revolving around these characters that we're, we're figuring out. And so Kira's mom grew up in rural West Virginia, so we get kind of another photo montage showing um, her mom's history and how she, you know, when she left West Virginia and, and moved to the city. And there was an interesting exchange, too. Like I said, her and her mom obviously don't have the best relationship, but her mom... Um, asks, hey, what happened with your friend Dylan? And Kira just, you know, succinctly replies, Dylan has a lot of problems. We also get a cool effect that we that we saw, I think it was in issue one or two, very early on in the series that I liked. Sean Phillips utilized it once in, the, in an apartment, but he also does it in this issue where um, he has a character existing in a frame, but then separated by another individual frame. So you basically have a full a full width of the page as an image, but then he'll isolate one character's kind of face as a, as its own frame while it exists within the larger frame. It's a cool effect, and you can you can see it in this issue, and you can also see it in, like I said, I think that was maybe issue two or three early on in the series. Yeah, it was, if I recall, it was Dylan on the couch with uh, with Kira and her then boyfriend. Yeah, it was it kind of physically separates um, the character from from. The person next next to him, in this case, Kira and 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 and, his, and her mother, and I think it also 
separates it not only in space but does so in 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 time it it almost causes at least in my mind as the reader it almost causes a beat to occur from from one part of this this image to another so it almost adds uh, motion in terms of the passage of time even though it it very clearly is a single a um a, a single image and she talks a little bit so you know once her mom brings up Dylan then she kind of goes into talking about how she and Dylan first met. And we get another, you know, there's this recurring theme, too, of these photo montages. So it goes back and forth between conventional sequential storytelling, comic storytelling, and then these photo montages with with narration. So it goes back into that mode, and it shows early on in Dylan and Kira's relationship. They're at a karaoke bar, and Dylan's singing a Joni Mitchell song, and he and Kira connect. And so there's this photo booth shots of um, Dylan and Kira just kind of goofing off. And uh, there's an interesting line there, too, where Kira is reminiscing about that night, and she says, we sat on some steps and had one of those talks where it's like you've always known each other, where you talk about family curses and suicides. So obviously the family curses jumped out at me, and, and that raises again this question of, you know, is Dylan's family, is this demon a recurring curse that's that's affected you know more than just dylan if it's just something that's attached to his family in some way i thought that was an interesting line that probably was meant to mean something yep and it could and and there continues to be an awful lot of ambiguity about about the objective reality of of the the demon and here that that could point in one of either direct direction you know maybe a, a history of being being literally tormented by by a literal demon who who showed up in one of uh, of his dad's drawings we see at the the kind of surprising almost cliffhanger end of an issue and then um, on the other hand it could be a as we find out at the end of this issue at the end of this issue it could be it could suggest a family history of um, of psychological problems so I feel like either in the newsletter or in that College Juice interview with Brubaker that he had a line about the demon that I thought was interesting, and I can't remember exactly what he said. But it it pushed me back in the direction of, oh, this is a, a tangible, real thing and not just happening in Dylan's head. But it wasn't that explicit. It was just kind of I was reading between the lines. Yeah, and I and I do hope you, you're you're right about about that, that I do hope it's not just in, in Dylan's head. But, but I think... Th- um, the ambiguity is is a source of tension for for the reader and a source of suspense that you know it's not cheating you know it's not with with withholding necessary stuff to to in, to follow what's going on but I think it's going to be kind of held there for as long as it as possible and certainly as long as it makes sense within the story so yeah I agree I think they're going to milk that just because it's um, and the cliffhanger, the cliffhanger, this issue deals with that same kind of idea where we don't know how reliable Dylan is and what's going on inside his head, which we'll get to in a little bit. But yeah, I think they're going to drag that out, like you said, as long as possible, just because it is a, it facilitates the cliffhangers as well too, when we just don't know exactly what's real and what's not and what's happening in Dylan's head. And we get, we get some first person Kira narration. Um, I noticed that they used a different lettering style than we've seen previously, um, during her narration, and Kira sneaks into uh, Dylan's apartment. So after her conversation with her mom, she's thinking about Dylan. Um, she obviously still has feelings for him and is struggling with this falling out that they've had. 
And uh, I did take note, I don't know how significant it is, but Dylan's apartment number was apartment number 13, which wasn't too surprising. So Kira sneaks into his room and uh, sees that their picture together together has been taken down. So it kind of shifts back into, like like, uh, Bubba was saying, kind of this almost teen drama feeling. You know, so she's dealing with this lost relationship and questioning, you know, what she should have done. And at that time, Dylan comes back into the story with Daisy and Kira is forced to hide in the closet and gets in the awkward situation of being forced to listen to them having sex while she's in the closet. And then she's also frustrated because she says this is the exact kind of situation that my mom would would find herself in. It's been a recurring theme with Kira that... Her fear is that she she is going to become her mother in terms of being this sort of sort of uh, chameleon and taking on the identity of uh, of whoever she's with. So the irony being that that in trying to um, break away from her mom, she may be repeating the same uh, repeating the same mistakes and even the most drastic thing that that she apparently does, which is uh, change her hair color, dye her hair some pretty pretty vivid colors even that is kind of a um a very physical playing out uh of this idea of being a uh, a chameleon being a shapeshifter of in terms of your identity and there's just a there's an interesting i mean it's there's an obvious parallel between dylan and kira you know they both have somewhat elderly mothers that are still alive they've both lost their fathers at a young age uh, they both have, you know, like I said, kind of a troubled childhood. So, you know, I'm seeing lots and lots of similarities and parallels between these two. And and if they're and if their their moms aren't that that old, they've definitely been through an awful lot. You know, they that both of their mothers have been, you know, it, <laughs> what's the line from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? It's not the years, it's the mileage. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, they both look they both look quite old, considering that uh, Dylan and Kira are supposed to be in their twenties. But yeah, so we find Kira hiding in the closet, and uh, this leads to kind of the the cliffhanger ending when she uh, discovers his, in quote, medication, and it's a prescription for somebody else. It's uh, a gentleman named Barry Tillman. Have we have we seen that name come up anywhere, or is that no, a new one? No, I think the assumption is, is that, um, or at least the, my assumption, yeah, is that since, especially since the uh, pharmacist mentioned black the black market, it is that um, this was the quote-unquote prescription or medicine that um, that Dylan was was buying from his has been buying from his drug dealer. So yeah, Kira discovers this medication. Obviously, it's got someone else's name on it. So then she um, presumably sneaks out of the apartment at some time. At some point, we don't see exactly how that goes down. I I don't know. She ends up staying in there all night. Uh, well, until Daisy and uh, Dylan leave. But anyway, she gets out and we see her going to a pharmacy and uh, the pharmacist confirms, says, hey, these aren't uh, clozapine or antipsychotics. They are just a low dose of Valium. So like like Bubba said, that raises a whole bunch of questions um, about what's going on with Dylan's frame of mind. You know, your your summary, I mean, there's it's a dense read. Um, it's it's a lot there in terms of of uh, the emotions that are conveyed, the 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 history, the psychological state. But even even as you say it, you know, the, <laughs> in terms of plot points, there's there's not a whole lot to the issue. There's therapy session, hospital visit, um, apartment visit, pharmacy, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, presumably this could all be happening in what you know one day. 
it looks like it. Yeah, one day or or the very next day, the pharmacy visit. Everything else seemed to happen the 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 uh, same twenty four hour period. Yeah. Yeah, and the next, I thought that they go back to the photo montage once once more towards the end, um, and I thought it was the best the best dialogue, the best writing of the whole comic. There's there's one last um, family photo album, and I'm going to read a little bit of this, of this to you because I thought it was so nice. Uh, so Kira's talking about about her family falling apart, basically, and she says, Sometimes when I think about my family, all I can see are the thousand little wounds that made us who we are, the ones lost to time and death, and those of us still here continuing the cycle. I see us moving forward, diminishing over time until there's nothing left but a distant shared pain, and knowing looks that say, I know what you've been through, I was there, I wear those chains too. I thought that was just really, really nice. And there's there's three pictures there to go along with it of kind of her aging through her childhood. Um, you see her parents getting married, then you see her as a child, then you see her, uh, it looks like she's graduating from either high school or college, and I assume high school in that picture. But um, I thought that was a really nice page. What I was surprised of this issue is what we, we didn't see. We didn't see Kira changing her hair color. It just, you know, it was taken for granted. We didn't see, you know, there's this... One of the most striking things about the comic book is the the cover of Kira holding what what I what we presume would be uh, Dylan's sawed off shotgun, and she it's not as if she she discovered his his secret life, um, but in a metaphorical sense, it ended with with a fairly big discovery on her part. So a couple of things that I wasn't a huge huge fan of is uh, in this issue is that that number one I wasn't sure that I buy just in terms of uh, of the mechanics or, uh, you know, in, in terms of there are so many, I guess, heists and criminal plots and, and espionage stories where where everything's running like a well-oiled machine that I'm not sure I buy her being able to see a, um, a medicine bottle in, in a closet in an apartment um, at in an apartment bedroom at night. Um, and and also I'm not as much of the lyric worked in that little um, ex- explanation of, of the night that she and Dylan really, really connected. I'm not sure I buy, even in New York City, I'm not sure I buy in a um, karaoke bar where you do a um, non-single uh, from a 1971 Joni Mitchell album. Well, there, there's a um, lot of hip, there, there's probably a lot of hipster bars in uh, New York City where they just have quirky uh, deep cuts like that, maybe I'm assuming. Yeah, it, it's just I guess I, I guess I'm not sure I would. I'm not sure there's a lyric that is as succinct enough in in what I would have proposed as, as an alternative karaoke song. But if you're going to have um, millennials daring each other to do karaoke uh, songs, and a guy is going to 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 do a female singer songwriter so, um, uh, um, love song. Um, Jules' foolish games from the '90s would have, I think, would have been a better choice. Or gold, or Goldfinger. Or, or yeah, Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger. <laughs> there's not yes. enough. There's not enough Goldfinger karaoke going on these days. I, I've been saying that for years. Yep. I do think you know, write, you, as a writer, you write about what you know about, so you end up writing a lot about writing or writers or readers. Um, I, I do think, you know, on the one hand. A story with this first-person narration really does a great job uh, of conveying 
uh, Kira's psychological state, and that's that's what what makes this issue stand out is the reality of it, of her emotions, her 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 mental state, her sometimes really stupid decisions, her otherwise irresponsible decisions like not visiting her mother and her, her attempt to, 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 to justify it at least to herself if if not to anyone else. Um, but I do I do like the the stories such a you know I, I, I like how much say Teague and Tracy Lawless stand out as central characters who who are not open books. You know, they're, they're the narration for them when they're adults is in the uh, the third person and the only thing you know about them you can you 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 really learn is from from what they do rather than what they say or what they think but yeah it's an engrossing story i mean it's it's a story you know the the photo montages really do carry this book and there are 10 pages of it you only, i only realized that after the fact count you know counting them and they they a few of them raise some interesting questions of, of, you know, there's, I tried whenever I read a comic book like this, try to fit it into the context of what I already know. And clearly this story is not, you know, if in my head, one possibility is that everything Dylan is relaying, he's doing so maybe to, to a shrink in some sort of mental ward after, you know, after all the events have long since taken place. Um, clearly that's not part of that, but it, I do wonder if we're, we're supposed to, um, ask who she is talking to, because at the very beginning, the, that photo montage, the, the, the narration is her talking to her, her therapist, but that session ends, but the narration continues. It also makes me wonder about Kira's place in the story. Clearly she's the, having an issue devoted just to her and you know quote unquote what Kira sees when we when we know so little uh, about Dylan's current uh, girlfriend you know, it clearly conveys that she's the you know if it, it, she is the Mary Jane Watson or the the Lois Lane to um to to Dylan's you know Peter Parker or Clark Kent it certainly suggested whether or not that's going to be end up being the case, or or if it's going to be a, a massive faint, we'll we'll have to see. Yeah, I mean, and you know, with seeing her with a shotgun on the cover, I mean, do you see the potential for Kira and Dylan to turn into like a a Bonnie and Clyde type situation? Um, maybe because as much as I, I could see that, I could actually see it going in that direction. And I honestly just thought of that as I was sitting here listening to you talk during that last section. Yeah. The, the, I think what, what struck me a lot about this comic was what was, what was not there in terms of not a lot of events take place. We don't see her dye her hair. We don't see her hold the shotgun. Um, and, and we, and, and on this shotgun thing, we, we, the, the cover, the cover art, when she is such an open book to Dylan, um, it, you know, when they went to Coney Island and such an, and at very least willing to interact with her therapist and is such an open book in her narration, her, her look on the uh, cover is inscrutable. It's not, not at all clear what she's thinking as she's holding this, this very deadly weapon. And just an aside, you know, one, another thing that I do miss, though, with Killer Be Killed that I like that they've done in, in recent books is, I miss that little uh, 
frame of artwork that they used to put on the back cover that they would pull out of the issue. I think they did it for the fade out and they did it for Fatal, I believe, is the first time they did that. Um, I do miss that on this book. I, I always like that. It was just a nice little touch. Yeah, uh, Fatal had a single frame either where they removed the caption or it was uh, a frame where there wasn't any caption to begin with, where it was just like background, you know, landscape or something. And then the fade out did something something else a little little different was the uh, the fake um, promo cards for the movies um, being produced at the time. Yeah, Sean Phillips mentioned that he has, a, again, going back to that interview, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. If you listen to just just one pa- podcast, listen to ours. But if you're going to listen to a second one, do 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 listen to the uh, the, the Comic Art Festival um, interview of Sean Phillips, is that um, he has this background. He went to school uh, for graphic design or art design, and it turned out that that it really has come in handy in terms of his designing the creator-owned books, both on the, the monthly issues and, and and the trade paperbacks and even the the deluxe hardcovers. And yeah, it was it, it, it's either the the extra artwork on the back cover or in the case of the magazine size variants, the 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 fake ads. It, it it adds a little little something to it, or or a lot of the criminal issues. It was really a wraparound cover. So the next issue, number eight, uh, as I think Ed says in the back matter, he says Dylan takes his book back, and there's a man. The cover for for next month's issue is just gorgeous. It's Dylan in a ski mask with a shotgun um, under this bridge, which doesn't sound like a gorgeous image, but it is. It's really nice. The colors are nice and. Uh, so yeah, that'll be interesting to see as it shifts back to Dylan where we um, where we pick up with him. You know, I don't we don't know if we'll pick up in time. You know, before this uh, this Kira arc or afterwards. We just, it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Yep, and and you know, kind of balancing out the the lack of any extra artwork on the back is that I think more so than than um, the fade out, and perhaps maybe more so than than Vital so far. The, the issues that comprise a single arc or a single trade paperback uh, collection, so far the cover arts tend to have ha, have a theme that uh, issues one through four, you have this black background, very, very, very little color, either the red ski mask or Kira's red hair. And then in this case, you have um, the, the cityscape backgrounds with, with next week um, being... I guess the the underpass of a bridge, and I guess that's that that's it looks to be a park, and I'm guessing would be um, oh what's the big park in New York Central Park Central Park yeah, and, and then you you know here you have the background of the cityscape, you have the the the, the cop car on the previous issue, and yeah, it, it very least if you put the the issues um, next to each other on uh, on your desk as I'm one to do, you know. Uh, particularly in in uh, preparing for for these recordings, yeah, they they look great together. So, was there anything else, Bubba, that you wanted to talk about on uh, this issue before we shift into uh, recommendations? Uh, the only other thing was one other question uh, to which I don't have an answer, but I think um, a question I'd like to ask for to to readers as they go through the issue again is, whose pictures are we looking at? To to whom do they belong? I I think it's it goes without saying that it's not her mom that did this, who tore out her own her own self on, on the photos of, of her ex-husband. And I think the pictures that we're looking at are, are 
her pictures. She's the one who who cut out or or scratched out or tore out her mom from pictures of her mom and dad. Pretty much all you need to know about her relationship with her mom, and then um, her um, uh, her father's backstory. You know, probably brought to us by the uh, country song um, "He Stopped Loving Her Today." If you if you want to to hear a probably the saddest country song where the 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 punchline to it you know he stopped loving her today is about as as on the nose as you can imagine there's there's that one so yeah is that George Jones I think so I think so uh, that comes to mind but I don't know if not it should be George Jones we'll just leave it at that George Jones yes sir he stopped okay, loving her the today. Po- the possum himself, George Jones. Yep. So yeah, I think that pretty much covers uh, this month's issue of Killer Be Killed. So we will shift into our uh, recommendation section for this month. Uh, the book that I wanted to recommend is a is a comic that's one of the first comics that really got me on board with the uh, the creator owned angle of comics, and that is DMZ. No. Um, it was the book by Brian Wood with art by Ricardo. Berkielli, not sure on the pronunciation there. The the um, rapper, the rapper, right? Oh yeah, no that yeah. There's a subtle difference. That's DMX, um, which will be my next month's recommendation. I'm sure will be the entire discography of uh, DMX. But this month, yeah, I was going to talk DMZ. Um, it was published by Vertigo from uh, 2005 to 2012. So there's like 72 issues, I think, total in the run. Um, I was late to the party a little bit. A friend of mine, Derek, uh, kept recommending DMZ to me and uh, loaned me the first couple of trades, and and then I uh, I was hooked pretty much after that. But it's a very cool premise for a book. It's set in the near future where um, a second American Civil War has started. So you've got Manhattan. Manhattan Island is the uh, demilitarized zone, the DMZ, set between these two warring factions. So literally the first frame of the first page of the book is a map um, that shows New Jersey and the inland United States west of that as belonging to the free states, which are kind of this rural Tea Party-esque militia group that has risen up and is fighting the U.S. government. Um, The U.S. government is based in Brooklyn, Queens, and Long Island, and then the island of Manhattan is smack dab in the middle, and that's the DMZ. Like I said, there's... Uh, so there's like 400,000 people left living in Manhattan, mostly poor people or holdouts who were not evacuated when, when war broke out. Um, and that map, like I said, it's just done really, really well to where it just hooks you, I think, the first frame. And Brian Wood has a history as a has a graphic designer and video game designer. So he has – and he does he does a lot of the covers, and some of the artwork is intermittently done by him. And it's got a really, really distinctive look as uh, – Berkeley is a great comic artist for sure, but I, I do find myself wishing that Brian Wood could have done actually more art for the book. Um, it's kind of this mixed media style of photos and graphic elements, and then some of it's drawn, and it kind of has like a Banksy street art style, but it's a really, really cool style, and you can see it on the covers for the for the monthly issues. And our protagonist is a, a 20-something reporter named Maddie Roth, and he gets thrust into this war zone kind of as an accidental embedded reporter. He's just supposed to be interning um, and then ends up kind of stuck in the DMZ and then stays and, and sends out news stories on what's happening in, in, this, uh, in Manhattan. And it definitely – the book definitely feels uh, like it's from the, you know, like the George W. Bush era and all the hot political topics of that era. 
You've got September 11th that hovers over the whole book, as well as the Iraq War and Hurricane Katrina. Um, so it's definitely a political book, but really neither of the two sides fighting are portrayed in a positive light. It's more just about these people that are left in the middle of the, the two warring factions. So it doesn't. It, it's more about the book's kind of more takes a stance on class issues in the media and then just kind of how things like art and love can happen even in horrible circumstances like a civil war. So it's a cool premise for a book. Um, like I said, it went on for, yeah, 72 issues. Um, and it's a, it's a real smart, uh, unique comic book, so I, I do recommend it. Um, I know at one time I think Sci-Fi had optioned this as a TV show, like maybe 2014, 2015, but I, I, so I'm not sure what the status of that is now. I haven't heard anything about it. It sounded like it was going to be a TV show, but I'm wondering if that's um, not happening now. But anyway, that's a that's a pretty good book to check out. Like I said, it kind of opened my eyes to create our own books, um, along with the Brubaker and Phillips stuff. That is uh, DMZ by Brian Wood, Ricardo Berkey, Ellie. And you and you said you'd you'd recommend it, you know, regardless of, you know, uh, the politics of the reader, whether it's left, right, or indifferent. It sounded like I, I would really like. I said it's more. It really just portrays both sides as bad. Um, kind of equally bad, and it's just more about the people left in the middle and just how life is kind of rebuilding in that island between these two warring factions and then kind of the false message that the the, the public outside of Manhattan is getting about what's happening there. Um, so it's an interesting book. Like I said, it definitely feels of that era and what, the, what issues were hot then, but um, I, I think it's aged pretty well, actually, and I think it's still a good read. Yeah, regardless of uh, political affiliation. Yeah, and as much as I'd consider myself a political junkie, I do, I do think you know, end of the day, people matter more than politics. It's um, the that that line from you too that what was it? Um, that uh, people's lives are bigger than any big idea. So very cool. Cool. Yeah. What were you going to recommend this month, Bubba? Me, I will. I'll recommend. I I kind of surprised that I am making this recommendation, but. Um, Recently had my birthday and got a, a couple of uh, DVDs over Christmas and birthday and got or Blu-rays and going through them. It's uh, Miami Vice. It is Michael Mann's 2006 um, movie uh, um, based on the uh, classic 1980s uh, cop show of the same name uh, with uh, Colin Farrell, Jamie Foxx, and yeah, I mean it. It. it came to theaters at a pretty much exactly the right time for for me it was summer of 2006 literally you know weeks before i got married um where where my wife was out of town finishing school um i had nothing to do in the in the evenings other than than go home and feed my cat so i i went to the to the theater more often than i should have and just went and saw the the movie over and over again it's um the the premise being um a take on one of I think the very first episodes, a very early episode of the TV series, basically um, the uh, the the two main characters, um, Sonny and Rico, you know, or, or Ricardo and Tubbs, as they were known in the TV in the the TV show, um, they are uh, undercover cops for Miami Dade Police, and they get caught up in in they get caught up in a mission to go undercover with international drug dealers to try to ferret out basically a mole who, who recently ratted out um, the FBI and a joint agency task force um, to, to very deadly effects. 
and while they are undercover, um, the line is that, that, you know, there's being undercover and there's being, you know, which way is up. Um, uh, and, uh, Sonny, um, Colin Farrell's character ends up, uh, falling for a woman who, who is basically the, the accountant, the, 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 the finance, um, expert, uh, for the, the huge, uh, drug dealing, uh, operation. So, and, and of course that is a really huge, really bad idea. And one bad idea leads to another and leads to, uh, to, to tension and um, conflict of the the sort that Michael Mann films very very well involving um, involving high powered automatic rifles. Um, it's I would I would definitely say it's an imperfect film, but it's at the same time hypnotic. Um, it's not as great as Heat. Uh, you know, Robert and I were talking about this offline that I would actually would rate it higher than collateral um, if, if only because of the, the performances. But it's not as great as, as Heat. In part, the, the, the characterization is a bit more obscure as much as I as I just said that, you know, you can go overboard with characters who explain themselves too much. It's hard to top the the coffee shop scene in Heat. Um, and I think this goes in the other direction where motivation is really at best in implied and it's never, never made explicit. Um, and there's some clunky dialogue. There's some clunky acting on some of the, the um, secondary uh, characters. Um, the uh, movie was actually released a home video in two releases, the, the theatrical and the director's cut and I, uh, or the, what's called the extended director's edition. And funny enough, I think both editions are flawed. Um, the, the extended cut adds the sort of prologue uh, to the beginning of the movie to kind of set the scene, uh, which I would say, you know, thumbs up, but it also adds um, some fairly distracting music, a good song, but, but a fairly distracting song to, um, to the, uh, to the climax uh, of you know the big action uh, finale. Um, at the same time, you know it has a great soundtrack. One of the things uh, that Sean Phillips mentioned again in the, the that podcast interview is that in addition to I think he really emphasized Elvis Bowie and maybe Hunky Dory as his favorite album. Um, he he loves listening to soundtracks and you know in, in in the real world as a technical writer i i enjoy doing the same it's very easy to get into a groove with a good soundtrack album and this has one of the best soundtrack albums i've i've ever listened to um the the other two big ones i would put you know if you're not talking musical scores are the the pop music from um from train spotting and from baz Luhrmann's uh, romeo and juliet and and this soundtrack it's even better than the Heat soundtrack because it doesn't have a bad track. There's a track from the the, the Heat CD that <laughs> apparently Michael Mann took the 15 second snippet, the only 15 second snippet that wasn't a tonal noise, <laughs> but he included the entire track. And, and this soundtrack is great, but it it omits the songs that were the mo- most of the songs that were the most prominent in the movie. You know, it has the uh, the the cover of Phil Collins in the air tonight. But it it omits the Jay Z Lincoln Park collaboration, and it omits the two uh, Audio Slave songs that that they ended up um, that 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 band um, gave to the movie, but held back for the soundtrack for their their own um, I think second uh, studio album, and that 
that kind of sums up the movie is that you have Jay-Z and Linkin Park uh, on the soundtrack in the film itself. You have Audio Slave, which is a super group, you know, which is Chris Cornell, Cornell, the lead singer from Soundgarden, and then the instrumentalists, the band from Rage Against the Machine. So you have these cross-cultural super groups and collaborations for this very cross-cultural movie, you know, this globe-spanning movie. With a with a lot of style um, in its filming, a lot of style in its cinematography. It uses uh, digital cameras, and it just has this this grainy effect that that actually feels more real than film, at least in the case, in the context of this movie. But the the fact that they didn't make the soundtrack album just I mean that just kind of sums it up. It's it's. <laughs> nothing about the movie is absolutely it's absolutely perfect but there's enough that gets close enough to it that 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 it's worth um worth watching and there was a um a a review i recently read that basically calls it exactly exactly that that it's just so so entrancing and it's and he called it one of the most expensive art house movies um ever made so <laughs> Yeah, and I seem to remember Audio Slave being in the soundtrack for Collateral as well. So I wonder if he's tight with one of those guys. I wonder if Michael Mann's tight with one of those guys. Well, if, if it's not him, it might be the. And sorry about the pause. Was was looking up something. Um, so I'll start again. Well, well, if it's if it's not Michael Mann, it's maybe his collaborators. Kind of like why you you keep seeing Towns Van Zant song, songs on movies with uh, that, that star Jeff Bridges. But but um, yeah, there's never. I I don't think I've ever seen a Michael Mann movie that doesn't have style. And there's a video on YouTube that that calls Heat like the perfect combination of of realism and and style, and this one gets pretty close. It's, you know, <laughs> as much as I will list through through the reasons it's not perfect, I say all that, and then then I got this uh, Blu-ray I, for for Christmas, and I keep popping it in when I have a couple spare hours. So, so the 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 sum is definitely greater than the, um, or the whole is definitely greater than the uh, the sum of the part sum of its parts. So. No, that's a great recommendation. That's a movie that I definitely want to revisit. Um, I think I've just seen it one time when it first was released on DVD. So, uh, yeah, I'll put that in the queue. I, I, I'm going to have to revisit Miami Vice. Great recommendation. But, yeah, I think we will uh, wrap things up there. The hour is growing late. Uh, my uh, Four Roses small batch glass is now empty. And uh, so we'll we will... Uh, reconvene in about a month and we'll dive back into killer be killed and then i'm anticipating again next the next time they have an off month that we will also uh go back into the brubaker and phillips back catalog and dive into another one of those books we've had a couple recommendations come through twitter from listeners who have uh, thrown out books that they would like to see us dive into so yeah we hope to get to all of that as time allows but thanks again for joining me bubba absolutely it was a pleasure you can always find us undertow.podbean.com or on iTunes, or you can shoot us an email, undertowpodcast at gmail.com or at undertowpodcast on Twitter, and we will see you in about a month. Thanks, folks.